Hello and welcome to our 100th episode of Damn Interesting Week. It is such an exciting way for us to come back from the Thanksgiving break. And as mentioned in our last episode, we are celebrating with a themed bonus episode called Criminals Who Are Bad at Their Jobs, which you should see available for download right next to this one in your queue. We hope you'll check it out after listening to this episode, of course, which I can already tell you is going to be a good one. So without further ado, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right, guys. TheGuardian.com is reporting that a priceless Roman mosaic spent 50 years as a coffee table in a New York apartment. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. An Italian expert on ancient stone and marble named Dario del Bufalo in 2013 gave a lecture and he signed copies of his book, which is called Porphyry. And in the book, it included a picture of the long lost mosaic, which once formed part of a floor on one of two vast quote-unquote party ships commissioned <laughs> by Caligula to float on a lake near Rome that were then sunk when the emperor was killed. Why would you sink it? Why not take it? I yeah. understand you got to like erase everything of your predecessor, but it feels like a party boat you can keep. Yeah. <laughs> the mosaic and the other antiquities were recovered from the lake in the 1930s, and then they were put into a lakeside museum. But in 1944, as the Nazis were getting out of Italy, the ships and many other treasures were burned. Ooh. Yeah. Seven years later, as he signed copies of his book, Del Buffalo overheard a man and a woman say the woman had the mosaic they were looking at on the page. Quote, <laughs> there was a lady with a young guy with a strange hat that came to the table and he told her, Helen, look, that's your mosaic. And she said, yeah, that's my mosaic. <laughs> so Del Buffalo tracked down the young man who confirmed that Helen Fiorati, an art dealer and gallery owner, had the mosaic in her apartment in Manhattan. And according to an interview that she gave the New York Times in 2017, she and her husband, an Italian journalist, bought the mosaic from an Italian noble family in the 1960s. Hmm. And when it arrived in New York, they turned it into a coffee table. Quote, it was an innocent purchase. It was our favorite thing, and we had it for 45 years. The mosaic returned to Italy and went on display at the Museum of the Roman Ships in Nemi in March of this year. So, yay, it's back home and can be displayed. Yeah, but did they take off the coffee table legs, or did they just put it up <laughs> as is? Like, <laughs> You know, it's funny you ask, because Del Buffalo said, I felt very sorry for her, but I couldn't do anything different knowing that my museum in Nemi is missing the best part that went through the centuries, through the war, through a fire. But he did say he wants to make a copy for her to keep in her apartment. And that's the best thing about art is like when it comes to ancient antiquities, I'm okay with a copy, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, she liked the beauty of it. And if they're going to make it look as good. I, exactly. I can't imagine as, a, as someone who appreciates art that she wants a priceless mosaic as her coffee table anyway. Yeah. Like she should want it to be preserved. <laughs> right. Knowing the actual provenance and history of it, I'm sure it was not that difficult to get her to part with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled, A Woman Pleads Guilty to Using Rentahitman.com 
to try to kill her ex-husband for $5,000. Uh, so <laughs> did she plead guilty because the site was a complete scam? Because it sounds like a complete scam. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty obvious to anybody else listening that this site <laughs> is not real. But, um, you know, the very real, as in it exists, website, sure. rentahitman.com, asks visitors a simple question, got a problem that needs resolving? <laughs> although although the majority of people would recognize the website for what it is, a joke, there are remarkably still some that take it seriously and submit a request for murder. Wendy Wine, a 52-year-old Michigan woman, is one of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Earlier this month, she pleaded guilty to solicitation of murder and using a computer to commit a crime. The former crime carries a maximum lifetime sentence, while the latter is capped at 20 years. Oh, so she's not doing small time either way. Nope. I mean, under her plea agreement, Wine will serve a minimum of nine years in prison. Hmm. She started by filling out a service request form, which asks users for basic information on themselves, such as name, phone number, and email, as well (laughs) as information on who they want taken out. It's like the police report writes themselves, right? Like, you just need a Google form of like, who are you? How can we find you? What's the crime you want to commit? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a straightforward site with a simple design, and it boasts of having 17,985 field operatives all over the U.S. <laughs> to help customers, which is actually a reference to the rough number of law enforcement entities in the country. <laughs> it also claims it's compliant with the Hitman Information Privacy and Protection Act of 1964, <laughs> or HIPAA. Oh my God. <laughs> and yes, that is fake. Yeah. also includes satisfied customer testimonials, also fake. If you scroll down far enough, you can even see the phrase on the website's footer. Due to contractual restrictions, Rent-A-Hitman is no longer affiliated with Diners Club, Kanye West, The Illuminati, <laughs> Rudolph Giuliani, Alec Baldwin, or Kyle Rittenhouse. Wow. Wow. All right. Yeah. But uh, despite all this, there are still some people who think that Rent-A-Hitman.com is a legitimate website offering a real service. <laughs> I don't get it, Bob Inns, the owner of the joke site, told the Washington Post in a recent interview. People are just stupid. <laughs> in Wine's case, she agreed to meet one of the website's field operatives, who was actually an undercover police detective, <laughs> to talk about the job she wanted done. The police had been contacted by Inns, who determined that Wine was a real threat to others. As told by the Post, Wine informed the police that her ex-husband was a pedophile and described him in detail, providing his home address, the time he went to work, and the time he got home. She proceeded to give the police detective a down payment of $200 and agreed to give him $5,000 when her husband was taken care of. Wine was arrested shortly after the encounter. Inns didn't set out to create a honeypot for catching people who wanted to hire others to commit murder. Originally, he set up rentahitman.com in 2005 to start a cybersecurity company with some friends after taking a network penetration testing and risk analysis course. That never panned out, and his efforts to sell the domain name never got any serious offers, so Rent-A-Hitman just stayed online. (laughs) Years passed, and Inns decided to check the site's email to clean it up and see if there was an interest in buying the domain. Instead, he found roughly 300 emails from people around the world seeking various services from using Hitman to extort money from others to asking how much he charged to carry out a hit in Austria. Wow. 
In started to work with law enforcement when he received an email from a woman from the UK living in Canada who wanted three of her family members killed because she claimed they had left her without an inheritance. Oh. And he confirmed all the information she provided and then got the information to the Canadian police who found that the woman had outstanding warrants for serious charges and extradited her back to the UK. <laughs> Other serious requests that have led to arrests over the years, a Kansas woman wanted to kill people who were reportedly disparaging her in her small town and told them to use guns, bombs, or anything or any way to remove them. <laughs> I can't imagine why she was being disparaged. Yeah. The Kansas <laughs> woman was found guilty of solicitation to commit murder and was given three years of supervised probation. Another case involved a 20-year-old man from Virginia who wanted his ex-girlfriend, her mother, and her stepfather murdered. Ugh. He also asked Inns to kidnap her baby and <gasps> bring the baby to him so he could start a family with another woman. Okay. The Virginia man pleaded guilty to solicitation of murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, although he got 10 years of his sentence suspended. Overall, at least a dozen cases involved people using renttohitman.com have led to arrest. Inns does not meet his potential customers in person or agree on any set fee for the website's services. Instead, he passes on information he identifies as troubling to the police who are the ones in charge of making contact with the individual. More than 10 years after rentahitman.com first helped police catch a criminal, it's still doing its job, despite the fact that Inns doesn't keep the website's true nature a secret and has done a variety of news interviews about it. Yeah, like, you would think that this article right here, everyone would be like, oh, okay, that one's fake, but I bet it doesn't make a difference. Nope. No, yeah. and here's what's terrifying to me. This is known information from a single joke website, but for the people who have enough knowledge to know to go to the dark web... Oh my goodness, how many of these websites are out there that are actually doing the work? <laughs> I don't know, man, because like Ross Ulbricht, he used the dark web to try to hire Hitman and he got caught yep. too and he's in jail. Yep. And yep. so, you know, maybe it doesn't actually work anywhere. Like, I think it's a little bit of a fantasy to think that there's just people out there going like, yeah, kill people for money. It's like I, you could do an, lots of things for money. Why would you risk your own skin for somebody you don't even know? It just seems like a fantasy that doesn't exist. Well, your lack of empathizing with sociopaths <laughs> and mercenaries for hire doesn't hide the fact that there are always going to people advertising their services. And anyway, yeah. sorry, don't mean to be so dark, but rentahitman.com. A joke website for anybody who still needs the reminder. <laughs> or, you know, not. Because if you need the reminder, it's it's very real, y'all. Go there. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me amend that. For any of you who have um, extremist friends, <laughs> direct them to this site so they can vent their frustrations and face the consequences yeah. for a safer society. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Don't be a snitch. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, next link. Next, next link. link. Okay, this next article is a historical profile on an absolutely amazing woman. It's from France24.com, and it's called Dancer, Singer, Activist, Spy, The Extraordinary Life of Josephine Baker. Yes! So the reason this article has come up now is because just this week, Josephine Baker was admitted into France's Pantheon, which is sort of like their Hall of Fame for the greatest historical figures of France. She nice. is only the sixth woman and the first black woman to ever be admitted. And perhaps even more impressively, she was not actually a native French woman. She was born in America. So, yes! you know, you got to figure for the French to honor someone who wasn't even born there is pretty darn impressive indeed. Mm -hmm. So she was born in St. Louis in 1906, the grandchild of former slaves. 
and from the age of eight, she was working as a domestic servant for wealthy households. By the age of 13, she was working as a waiter and met her first husband. There's no word on how old he was at the time, but they were divorced in less than a year, after which she joined a band of street performers called the Jones Family Band. (laughs) She got married again at 15 to a man named Willie Baker, and even though she ran away from that marriage a year later as well, she ended up keeping the name Josephine Baker for the rest of her life. By 16, she had moved to New York and was working as a dressmaker backstage on Broadway. And it ended up being her big break because when one of the dancers was too sick to perform, she said, hey, I've actually learned all the dance moves just by watching them from backstage. I can totally fill in. And she did. She was a huge hit with the audience. She got herself a main role on the stage. And just a couple of years later, she caught the eye of the wife of a U.S. diplomat who worked in Paris. Mm-hmm. And she offered Baker twice her current salary to come to France and star in a new show called La Revue Negre. And, you know, on the one hand, it's a little uncomfortable because she was clearly being marketed for the fact mm-hmm. that she was black, which was pretty rare and exotic in Paris back then. Mm-hmm. On the other, she notes in her own memoirs that she was treated with great respect. There was no institutionalized segregation. And within a few years, she was one of the highest paid performers in Europe. By comparison, in 1936, she took her show on tour back through America and she was met with tons of negative reviews that were just overtly racist. So she was like, screw this. I'm going to stay in France for good and become a citizen, which is how she was able to get into the Pantheon, because born Mm. there or not, if you're not a citizen, I don't think you can get in. Mm -hmm. So she learned fluent French. She starred in several French movies, and she and her third husband moved into a literal castle in the French countryside. But then World War II happens. And Josephine Baker immediately joined the counterintelligence service, using her fame and contacts all over Europe to gather information for the war effort. She just walked in and was like, I want to be a spy. Let me help you. (laughs) Well, I mean, she has so much to give to a country that had given her so much as well. Like, how patriotic is that? Yeah. She was an official member of the underground French resistance. And after Paris fell to the Nazis in 1940, she was known for passing coded messages inside the sheet music for her songs. Like, she was doing real spy stuff. She wasn't just like, "Ah, I was at a party and I heard a thing. She was doing dangerous activities. By the time the war was over, she had officially joined the French Air Force as a second lieutenant. What? had received both the Legion of Honor and the Croix de Guerre, which is France's highest civilian and military distinctions. Wow. Yeah. But through all of this, she never gave up on changing the hearts and minds of America. She was famous enough at this point that not even racist reviews could stop people from coming to her shows. Mm -hmm. And because she refused to perform in segregated venues, a lot of theaters and performance halls changed their policies specifically because of her. Wow. Yeah. Nice. She was just like, oh, did I just help defeat the Nazis? Guess it's time to take on the civil rights problem. Like she (laughs) just. Yeah. She did everything. Unfortunately, a lot of those, you know, theatrical changes were superficial. And in 1951, she was refused service at a swanky nightclub where she was performing. (sighs) And actress Grace Kelly, who was a good friend of hers, came to her defense. But an old journalist friend of hers, Walter Winchell, did not. And she publicly called him out on it. So he responded with a series of articles accusing Josephine Baker of being a communist which at the time was enough to get her work visa revoked, which forced her to cancel all her remaining shows and go back to France. Fragile, fragile white male ego. But the NAACP made her an official member. In 1963, she was invited to be one of the speakers at Martin Luther King's March on Washington. She was actually the last speaker to go up right before MLK himself. 
When she appeared, she was dressed in her full French Air Force uniform with all her medals. And she told the audience, quote, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth. She wasn't (laughs) taking it from anybody. So by now, she was married to her fourth husband, a prominent orchestra conductor named Joe Bouillon, and she was looking to settle down and start a family. Unfortunately, an infection she'd picked up during the war had forced her to have a hysterectomy. So she and her husband decided that they would adopt a rainbow tribe of children from all over the world. Oh, Josephine did it before Angelina. Uh Uh-huh. They ultimately adopted and raised 12 children from Japan, Finland, Colombia, Algeria, Ivory Coast, Venezuela, and Morocco. And as if 12 children wasn't enough, she opened the grounds of her huge chateau to all the neighborhood children as well, complete with a menagerie of exotic animals, including a pet cheetah and several monkeys. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Unfortunately, as a busy parent, she couldn't tour as much and her performance schedule couldn't keep up with her lavish lifestyle. So by 1969, she was forced to declare bankruptcy. She barricaded herself inside her chateau and said, you can't make me leave. But they ultimately forced her out and they auctioned off the chateau. And she did spend a short time living in a hospital in Paris until her close friend, Grace Kelly, who was now Princess Grace of Monaco, Mm -hmm. offered her a seaside residence in the French Riviera. Like she deserved. Yeah, she was like, you're so amazing. Just have a house. Go for it. It's fine. (laughs) So she got her feet back under her and started performing again, including a new autobiographical show about her life that was attended by such celebrities as Diana Ross, Sophia Loren, and Mick Jagger. During this time, she also picked up her fifth and final husband, though that marriage only lasted a year. When she died in 1975, more than 20,000 mourners lined the streets of Paris for her funeral, and the French government ordered a 21-gun salute, making Baker the first American-born woman to receive full French military honors at her funeral. Wow. Which is really the thing that sets her apart, I think. Because, yeah. you know, whatever. Elizabeth Taylor's had a bunch of husbands. And like you said, Angelina Jolie adopted a bunch of babies. <laughs> but Josephine Baker did all that and joined the Air Force and served yeah. a hugely yeah. important role in World War II. Yeah. You know, I mean, for all we know, Angelina is a spy and we don't know it yet. But well, I feel you know, like <laughs> she's been like a UNICEF ambassador and, and mm-hmm. she's definitely done things to do some of the same things. But for a black woman to do it back then. Yeah, and to exactly. That degree, like, oh, just yeah. amazing. I also love that she was like such a hothead in terms of, you know, dealing with people in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Yet she was still a spy and right, like could right. do that, you know, like that's yeah. awesome. Those do tend to be counteracting traits. Yeah, but also who would ever expect that person to be a spy, right? So it's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Next link? Next link! Good news, everyone! New Atlas is reporting that a biodegradable take on Velcro latches on like a parasitic climbing plant. Mm Mm-hmm. Scientists at the Italian Institute of Technology have developed what they describe as the first biodegradable version of Velcro. And it's not super strong. It's not going to keep your shoes on. But the material can be harmlessly attached to plants for the purposes of environmental monitoring. Or it could even be used for the controlled release of molecules into the plant's vascular system. Hmm. The best part? 
this little patch dissolves once it's done. Hmm. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it seems like something you'd want to have stay on there. I get. I mean, maybe they're using it for stuff that's only temporary. Yeah. I mean, think about post-it notes. Nobody thought <laughs> if they were trying to invent a glue that stuck and instead they got a glue that only sort of stuck. But turns right. out we kind of have a use for that, right? Right. That's what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just like the original Velcro was inspired by, you know, sticky burrs from burdock plants to cling to clothing. This new eco-friendly form also takes its cues from nature. They look to the plant Gallium aparine, or catchweed, because that plant has evolved an ability to climb over other plants through a parasitic anchoring system featuring microhooks on its leaves. This sees it latch itself onto the surfaces of other plants for physical support as it grows. So after studying these hooks in fine detail, the scientists used a high-resolution 3D printer, huh. and what they used was a sugar-like substance called isomalt. And when they did testing, they showed that these artificial hooks were capable of solidly attaching to different plant species and acted almost as a kind of plaster that can be secured to their leaves to serve a variety of purposes. So they can connect to the leaf's vascular system and therefore be used to release molecules and substances that might benefit them, like pharmaceuticals and pesticides. And because the isomalt is soluble, it just dissolves once it's done. Hmm. Alternatively, the hooks were also able to be printed with a photosensitive resin. And these, combined with electronics and other light sensors, would form intelligent clips for wireless communication on plant health. Look, I am new to gardening. But if I can have an app where I'm putting stickers on my plants and they're like, Mom, I'm thirsty, and I can spritz them with my, like, I'm ready for this, okay? They're uh, Tamagotchis, but they're connected to a real living thing. You could get little kids being in charge of your actual garden, and it, yeah, you wouldn't have to do oh, anything because they'd have fun Solar with it. punk Tamagotchi for the kids. It's not child mm -hmm. labor. It's education at exactly. home. You are selling me on this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's so exciting about this. So there's a video if you want to see kind of like how they were doing it. They almost look like those little zit stickers where it's like a hydrocolloid patch that you put on a zit and kind of like sucks it up and sort of like a flat little circular disc. But these are made out of some kind of sugar compound and can help us be more friend with plants. Yeah, no, I'm I'm absolutely sold on turning these things into a playable actual <laughs> gardening experience. Look, gamify gardening, yeah. profit, the world is a better place. Um, you heard <laughs> it here first. We will be expecting 5% of royalties. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from CNET.com. It's titled Amazon's never-ending fake reviews problem explained. Mm. I guess it's more than just people lying. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. So not everything is as it seems on Amazon's marketplace mm -hmm. where products are rated in a five-star system and a heavy number of positive reviews can help one brand stand out from a pack of competitors. This is not a new phenomenon. Some Amazon shoppers accept refunds and gift cards in exchange for positive reviews, despite the company's ban on the activity. Hmm. The e-commerce giant calls these incentivized reviews because they come from real shoppers who are paid for their positive opinion. Before Amazon banned the practice in 2016, reviewers would often admit they got a product for free in exchange for a review, but the practice is now fully in the shadows. Amazon also says it puts resources into removing fake reviews and the accounts that post them, adding that block 200 million suspected fake reviews before they were posted in 2020. That's a lot. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that makes me yeah. lose hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, I know there's a lot of products out there, but that's yeah. also a lot of reviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And you know they're concentrated on the most popular ones, of course. Sure. So a company spokesperson said 99% of Amazon's actions on incentivized reviews take place proactively before problems are reported to the company. But Amazon also struggles to identify fake reviews that come from real customers who've bought and used a product. Their behavior looks legitimate, and the same customer might write some reviews that are paid and others that aren't. Another major challenge to Amazon is that the fake reviews are often coordinated on social media sites the company doesn't control. Mm. In May, a UK regulator said it would continue scrutinizing these groups on Facebook and Instagram and note that 16,000 social media groups that coordinated refunds for fake Amazon reviews had been removed. Amazon itself also monitors social networks for groups coordinating the reviews and last year reported 6,000 of the groups to social media companies. But the problem has a circular nature. The faster a product can build up good reviews, the more visibility it can get as a bestseller on Amazon, and the faster it can earn the trust of shoppers who've never bought from that company before. As that company gets more customers, it also has more people it can solicit paid reviews from, speeding up its rating success even further. After buying a product based on positive reviews, an honest shopper might get recruited for a fake review scheme in a couple of different ways. Mm -hmm. In the first scenario, the product arrives in the Amazon Smile box and the customer notices a card with a QR code or a website printed on it. This is so common, no shopper would blink, and the link might lead to a regular customer support website that's above board. However, it might also lead the shopper to a group on Facebook or another social media site where the brand offers up more products for review in exchange for a refund. Hmm. The second scenario is more direct. The card in the package might directly offer a gift card or PayPal credit in exchange for a positive review. And then on a Facebook group that's coordinating these positive reviews, shoppers will see posts from the page administrators announcing new products that need reviews on Amazon or another online marketplace. And the shopper might also invite their friends to the group, recruiting even more people to write reviews in exchange for products. Sometimes multiple brands use the same group to trawl for reviewers. Once shoppers are in this world, they might even receive private messages or friend requests from unrelated companies looking for more people to review their products. Mm. So it's like an entire just cottage industry yeah. of, you know, scam reviews. Yeah, it's really fascinating that they're recruiting regular people and drawing yeah. them into this world rather than just saying we've got a troll farm with a million email addresses. They're getting yeah. real mm -hmm. people and getting them to do their dirty work. Yeah, and because, you know, it's really hard to ban real people who right. are both doing mm -hmm. valid things and are real customers, all of that. Mm -hmm. So in either scenario, the shopper writes a positive review and then sends proof to a representative of the company that could be in an email or private message on Facebook, and they may share their PayPal details or accept a gift card in return for their efforts. Facebook group administrators try to make themselves available to shoppers as much as they can, sometimes adding group members as friends on the platform and keeping them apprised of when they'll be available to answer questions or process refunds. Ugh. Yeah. See, I have a very, like, I'm of two minds about it. Like, on the one hand, when you leave a review on Amazon, you have to, like, include your real name and everything. They mm -hmm. attach it to your real account. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there have been times where there were products I genuinely liked and was like, I feel good enough about this. I might leave a positive review. But then I'm like, I don't want my shopping history attached and viewable to my name. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't want to be the person who's up there going, this toilet paper is amazing, you guys. <laughs> like, I just, it feels weird. I have distinctly not left reviews for products before because I don't like it being attached to me. But I also recognize if it's anonymous, then the fake review problem is even worse. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's not a good answer. If I have a product where I'm like, look, I have a really specific context and I have tried to find something that works. If mm -hmm. that sounds like you, maybe this review will help, which I'd like to think is like the most authentic human perspective and mm -hmm. method that the bots at least won't catch up with for a little while <laughs> longer. But like, 
Eco 88. Oh, I'll swear by this forever. It's like a stain remover if you have a pet. <laughs> and I wrote this like diary entry. I was like, you guys, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bare my soul here for a second. You gotta, like... It's one of those things where, you know, companies want their product to be so good it inspires this type sure. of thing. But because of how valuable that is to their, you know, marketing, uh, it's a vicious cycle. And I just try not to participate in it unless there is a standout product I have to tell everybody about. Like I just did. Right. Not, <laughs> not, not sponsored. No. Nope. Just passionate. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, in the category of we're not nearly as smart as we think we are, <laughs> Science Alert has an article called Shock AI Discovery Suggests We've Not Even Discovered Half of What's Inside Our Cells. Ooh. Mm. So, you know, I'm sure we all remember those cell dioramas we had to make in school, right? With mm -hmm. the Golgi complex and the lysosomes. And, of course, everyone's favorite, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Mm -hmm. But... All of those things are actually relatively massive structures that we can see with a normal microscope. On the nanoscopic level, there's a whole lot more going on, which for the most part, we're completely clueless about. What we do know is there are millions of proteins jostling around in there, and sometimes we can tag them with fluorescent dyes or use targeted antibodies to attach to the proteins and pull them out of the cell for closer examination. But in doing all that, we sort of inherently mess up whatever structures those proteins are part of. It's kind of like putting a meal in the blender. So you might be able to say, <laughs> oh, there's a certain amount of beef in this, but you're not going to know if it started out as a lasagna or a steak with a piece mm. of bread next to it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we do have quite a lot of raw data about what kinds of proteins are floating around in there. And the one thing we can do with raw data is feed it into an AI algorithm and say, find me some patterns, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a team of scientists led by Trey Eidecker of the University of California at San Diego have done just that. And a lot of what it actually did was calculate the distances between various proteins in these nanometric cell models to sort of guess which ones might be interacting with each other in what the researchers call protein communities or assemblies. And to their great surprise, the AI came up with 69 different structures that were consistent across all the cells it looked at, some of which were things we already knew about, but half of which were completely new. So one structure, for example, was something we'd never seen before, but once the AI said these proteins are definitely acting in coordination, Eidecker and his colleagues were able to figure out that the structure was likely responsible for transmembrane transport to pump supplies in and out of cells. Hmm. Other structures they were able to guess at included a family of proteins that seem to help organize chromosomes and another structure whose job is to make more proteins. They called their system the multi-scale integrated cell technique, or MUSIC, because it combines information from the nanometer scale with information from the micron scale to figure out not just what these protein structures are, but what larger organelles they're sitting next to, thus sort of giving us a clue about what they might be for. But yeah, long story short, those dioramas from biology class should have had about twice as many things inside them. And we're a long way from understanding how even a single cell in the human body really works. Mm -hmm. As a side note, you'll recall that I said the AI came up with 69 different structures. That's not actually what the article said. They mm -hmm. called it, and I quote, one shy of 70. <laughs> I have to assume is because the author just didn't want to put the number 69 in print, which is insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> but but yet very poetic in an almost Edwardian sense. Like how prosaic to avoid what could. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure it's a real problem where they don't want to get a thousand comments on their article just saying nice. But <laughs> like, if we're at the point where a number in a legitimate numeric context can't be printed, I don't like. We should just end society now. I don't. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, cells are complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. We're going to go all the way to 2015 in Melbourne, Australia, where David Hole, H-O-L-E, was prospecting in Maryborough Regional Park. He had a metal detector, and he found something out of the ordinary, a very heavy reddish rock resting in some yellow clay. So he took it home. He tried everything to open it, positive there was going to be a gold nugget inside the rock. Uh-uh. He tried a rock saw. He tried an angle grinder. He tried a drill. He even tried dousing it in acid. But not even a sledgehammer could make a single crack. And that's because what he was trying so hard to open was not, in fact, a gold nugget, but a rare meteorite. Hmm. What? I guess he's glad he didn't destroy it then. (laughs) I mean, he tried because he wanted to get the value out of it, but... Melbourne Museum geologist Dermot Henry told the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, it had this sculpted, dimpled look to it that's formed when they come through the atmosphere. They are melting on the outside, so the atmosphere sculpts them. Hmm. And Dr. Henry said, I've looked at a lot of rocks that people think are meteorites. In fact, after 37 years of working at the museum and looking at thousands of rocks, he said only two of the offerings have ever turned out to be real meteorites. Wow. And Mr. Holes was one of the two. Hmm. The researchers published a scientific paper describing the 4.6 billion year old meteorite. Wow. And they discovered its composition has a high percentage of iron, which makes it an H5 ordinary chondrite. Mm-hmm. I assume it's a very meteorite classification. Um, mm-hmm. But once it's open, you can see tiny crystallized droplets of metallic minerals throughout it. So they don't know where the meteorite came from or how long it's been on Earth, but they do have some guesses. They're thinking that it came out of an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and it was nudged out of there by some asteroids smashing into each other, and then one day it just kind of hit Earth. <laughs> Carbon dating says that the meteorite has been on Earth between 100 and 1,000 years, which is kind of a big range, but when yeah. you're talking about space stuff, that's actually sure. quite specific. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been a number of meteor sightings between 1889 and 1951 that could correspond to its arrival on the planet. The researchers argue that this meteorite is much rarer than gold, which makes it far more valuable to science, but unfortunately not to Mr. Hole. Uh, It's one of only 17 meteorites ever recorded in the Australian state of Victoria, and it's the second largest chondritic mass after a huge 55 kilo specimen was identified in 2003. And this is only the 17th meteorite found in Victoria, whereas they have had tons and thousands of gold nuggets found. So... Hmm. Looking at the chain of events, Henry told Channel 10 News, it's quite, you might say, astronomical in Mm. being discovered at all. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, Post Haste, Alabama Police Investigate Mystery of Ravine Full of FedEx Packages. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. So... Little quick short one here of just some mysterious male mishaps. (laughs) An Alabama sheriff was trying to figure out how hundreds of FedEx packages ended up dumped in the woods on Friday. An estimated 300 to 400 packages of various sizes were found in a ravine near the small town of Hayden on Wednesday. Deputies were sent to guard the scene until FedEx workers could pick up the packages. 
FedEx sent multiple trucks and drivers from across the South to load up. Natasha Abney told WBMA-TV her neighbor had found the boxes on his property. I mean, it was just a river of boxes, Abney said. (laughs) Some busted open, some not. It wasn't clear why the packages were in the ravine, the sheriff said, but he hoped to have some answers soon. And this is an evolving story, which I'm sure we'll all be waiting for the results of next week. (laughs) I desperately uh... want to know. Like, who's, because clearly it's like, okay, a driver was supposed to deliver these and he didn't. But was it like one truckload where he's just like, I'm taking the day off, I'm dumping them all? Or was it like a systematic thing over time where he's like, I don't like the look of that one and like throws it into the ravine? (laughs) Or you can do that for a long time if it's only like one occasional package. I'm I'm now imagining he's just driving by in his FedEx truck and just picks one and then tosses it out the window as he's driving, as he goes by the ravine every day. He was seduced over time by local pixies who live in the ravine. Oh, it's like a sacrificial gift. He's exactly. like, he's got to, to pay them off. Otherwise, so, horrible things. So, you know, we'll never know who it is because he lives in fairy now. You'll never yeah. find him. I bet <laughs> yeah. we catch him. I bet <laughs> FedEx is pretty good with tracking. I bet yeah. they'd be able to say, whose truck was this on last? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> we'll get him soon. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Once again, we want to thank you all for your support. We couldn't have gotten to 100 episodes without you, and we can't wait to see what the next 100 will bring. Don't forget to check out our bonus episode. And if you want to let us know what you think about it, you can always reach us at feedback at di.show. Of course, Damn Interesting is a big and busy site, and there are many articles we did not have time to get to today. Some of those articles include Why Some People Find It Harder to Be Happy, The Woman on the Bridge, And astronomers find a blazing hot planet that orbits its star in just 16 hours. So check those out. Drop us a line if you want. And, of course, if you want to buy us a cup of coffee to celebrate this milestone or just generally support our anti-advertising philosophy, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.